Merry Christmas and thank you all for tuning in to Black Diplomats. I hope everyone is enjoying their holiday season so far. Over in Ukraine, however, people are on edge and aren't able to enjoy this day because of Russian President Vladimir Putin's buildup of Russian troops on the Ukrainian border. Hundreds of thousands of them are reportedly preparing for a possible attack on Ukrainian soil as the West is negotiating a way to prevent that from happening. The White House is threatening stiff economic sanctions if the Kremlin does decide to continue its invasion into Ukraine, which started in 2014 with the illegal annexation of Crimea and eventually parts of eastern Ukraine. Ironically, 30 years ago today, the USSR ceased to exist when Mikhail Gorbachev resigned. Most of its republics had already declared independence long before that anyway. So there really wasn't much of a union for him to resign from. Ukraine had declared its independence in August of 1991. With us to discuss the significance of the USSR falling and Ukraine's place in that history are two of my favorite Ukrainian journalists. Ilya Ponomarenko is a defense and security reporter at the Kiev Independent. He has reported about the war in eastern Ukraine since the conflict's earliest days. Olga Tokariuk is an independent journalist and researcher based in Kiev. Her professional interests include Ukrainian and international politics, the study of disinformation, and its impact on democracies worldwide. Here's our conversation. years ago the Soviet Union failed man I mean you know it's um you know there are a lot of people who are celebrating or commemorating this date in their own way but I think it's really um timely that we focus on Ukraine because the country has changed and evolved over 30 years and you all you both you um you know Ilya and Olga you are two of the best um, you know, minds out there, journalists out there who are covering what's happening right now. Uh, but I just wanna, um, but before we get into that, given the fact that you have tens of thousands of Russian troops on your border and you have the Kremlin that is menacing you all, I know this just has to be a very stressful um, period for the both of you. So I want to do mental, a mental health check with the both of you. So with Olga, I'll start with you. How are you feeling? Hi, Terrell. Thanks for asking. Uh, yeah, well, you know, uh, there is this constant feeling of anxiety and stress and also fear of missing out that if you go offline for a while that you might miss, you know, that, I don't know, a Russian attack began or something. Uh, so on the one hand, there is this, but on the other hand, uh, while Ukraine, you know, is in a state of war de facto for the last seven years. So in a way, like, we already developed our coping strategies. And for me personally, like what I do to somehow alleviate this pressure of, you know, following the news constantly and like very stressful news and worrying for the future. Um, first thing is my family, definitely that, you know, spending time with my family that helps me to uh, alleviate that stress. And also when I'm like completely drained, I just uh, disconnect 
I just go offline if I can afford it for at least one day on the weekend and go outside and, you know, just don't read news, don't check tweet, new tweets and stuff like that. So that, that really helps. But yeah, I think this is, you know, the thing that is often gets overlooked that um, this is also like all this uncertainty and we, we don't know what's going to happen, when it is going to happen. This is also a way of, you know, keeping Ukrainians like under this like constant stress and constant pressure, draining our energy, uh, distracting us from doing some constructive things. But well, definitely we should like oppose it and still, you know, find time for ourselves and refill our batteries so we are able to resist and to go on. Ilya. Well, you know, I'm taking it pretty easy since, you know, I'm a war guy, so I have seen three wars around the world. So in general, I take it easier than probably most of the people out here. You know, we we're having the second time in the year that we have this, you know, war scare and crisis. It's, it's the second time. But in April, back in April, when we had the first crisis of this kind, you know, I just remember the very doomsday atmosphere in media, in Kiev, in general, among my friends. And I'm, to be honest, I was scared by them, you know, just generally, I was scared, even though I'm pretty reckless and uh, easygoing in terms of all these things. But back in the day, I was I was already thinking that, you know, that this is it. We're going to have a big war. You know, I got an apartment um, uh, in March, just a couple of months before this whole thing started. And I was thinking, like, guys, I just got a new apartment for, my, for myself. Just just don't start the destructive war. <laughs> it's not the best time for destructive war. So, yeah, I got this all these messages from friends generally asking me uh, what's what's going to come. But, you know, during the first crisis, that was all about, you know, emotions. So this time around, we have the second time. I find it way more easier for myself, for my, you know, mental stability. And, uh, you know, in general, for my, for what I do, live in, you know, the journalism. So this time around, I'm, I'm thinking more about, you know, not emotions that I feel, but, you know, the rational side of this whole thing, you know, the mechanism of this military buildup, uh, why, when, um, what do they want? So I'm pretty easy in terms of this because, you know, it consumes my mind from a rational point of view, not from irrational. So it's all about, you know, calculations, not emotions. So yeah, we work hard. I mean, the whole Kiev Post team and uh, myself included, we work something like um, 16 hours a day. But, you know, sometimes, you know, it gets you drained. So I tried, even though I love it, I know I feel, you know, morally inclined to do this um, as much as I can. So, but sometimes, yeah, I get myself distracted from that, you know, spend some time with my girlfriend, with the uh, with my friends, you know, all go to, to a shooting range to do some shooting just because I, I need fun um, in my life. And in general, I believe that's the best way, as Olga said, or also that's the best way to go through this. You know, life goes on anyway. So no matter how intense this is, you know, the best thing that we can do is, you know, to uh, keep on living the best life we can and be ready for anything, absolutely anything. So that's that's the best recipe, I believe, in this situation. Hey, Ilya. And by the way, when you are talking about your colleagues uh, now, mm -hmm. I noticed that you said Kiev Post, and I know now you're the Kiev Independent. Oh, I. it's just, you know, the uh, Freud thing. You're used to it saying the Kiev Post. Yeah, it's that. Yeah, that. 
some yeah sometimes we have this mistake <laughs> i'm on I'm on yeah no but it's okay because you you spent all your time in care posting it's interesting because i before i left my job uh as a as a political reporter at the root i lost count of the number of companies that owned our portfolio i was fortunate enough to to be a part of a union so the people just couldn't completely screw us over and so i hope that as Ukraine's media ecosystem grows, that you all find even stronger um, ways that you can protect yourselves. And I do hope that unionizing becomes a thing in Ukraine so that they just can't fire you and they just leave you, you know, with scraps or virtually nothing. Because I know in my last job, they couldn't do that with us. If they let us go, they had to give us two to three months severance. They had to give us health care. They had to give us all those things. You know, we had to fight for that. And so I hope that that type of security that I was able to enjoy comes to you all because you all deserve it. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I, I got this Freudian slip because, you know, we at the now at the Kiev Independent Formula with Kiev Post, we were so aggressively dedicated to what we do. I mean, it's it's a huge surprise to me that we just are not drifted apart in this in this whole process, but the whole team of 30 people, I mean, all, from all across the world. We decided to stay together and then we're still aggressive, you know, about this whole thing. I mean, the journal, core, core journalism values. So we are paying so much of our souls to this. You know, it's just unbelievable sometimes to see. So yeah, what we got, we sometimes get this, you know, flashback, uh, flashbacks from, from the past uh, because we still perceive ourselves as the, you know, as the one team. I just want to go back to you, Olga, about when you think about this day, uh, just tell me, I don't know how old you were when in, back in 1991 when the union fell, but if you have any memories of that uh, personally, uh, share those with us and tell us how you feel about this 30-year mark now. Yeah, well, I actually do have memories. Uh, I was six in 1991. And uh, I very well remember the day when me and my parents, we went to a polling station to vote in a, at a referendum for Ukraine's independence. That was December 1, 1991. And we lived in a small town in the Chernivtsi region in the Western Ukraine. And I remember, uh, I knew for sure that my parents were uh, going to vote for the independence. And I was very proud of them. I didn't understand uh, uh, completely what it meant, the independence of Ukraine, what would it look like? But I, I knew that my parents supported it and I, as their child, supported it too. So I remember the day when we went to the polling station, they took me with them and that I knew that they supported Ukraine's independence. Actually, on uh, that day the, at the referendum, uh, if I'm not mistaken, 92% uh, of Ukrainians voted for, for independence. It's either 90, 92 or 93. I'm 93, not sure about guess, this. Yeah, but, yeah, but it's, yeah. It, it's, it's that figure. So my parents were among them. And it's remarkable that actually in all regions of Ukraine, there was an overwhelming support for the independence back in 1991, including uh, Donetsk and Luhansk regions. Mm -hmm. Only in Crimea, there was a slightly more than 50%, 58% voted for the independence. But both in Donetsk and Luhansk regions, 
more than 80% voted for the independence. So that was in a way like the, the decision, this referendum in Ukraine, uh, that was basically a point of no return for the Soviet Union. Because when uh, smaller countries like the Baltic states, they were the first to declare independence and to uh, declare that they were leaving the Soviet Union. Ukraine followed. Ukraine declared its independence on the um, August 24, 1991. And this referendum, it was just like a, a, a confirmation by the people, a popular vote that was needed to legitimize the declaration in the parliament of the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. So after, after the people gave such a huge support, and I witnessed it, yeah, <laughs> I'm a testimony to this vote, I remember it, and my parents supported it. Uh, so after the people supported the independence of Ukraine, it was the end of the USSR. A week later, in uh, Belovierska Pusha, the accords were signed between uh, uh, the leaders of Russia, Yeltsin, Belarus, Shushkevich, and Ukrainian president, who was also elected on December 1, at the same day of the referendum, Leonid Kravchuk, that put a formal end to the USSR. And it was actually Ukraine and Ukrainians that convinced uh, 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 the leadership of Russia, Soviet Russia and Belarus at the time to, to sign these accords. It was Kravchuk, as he later told in his numerous interviews, and also Yeltsin and Shushkevich, they acknowledged that. They said that it was Ukraine and Ukrainians and this referendum that I remember, that I attended to uh, mark this, like, and so this was the end. If Ukraine departed, if Ukrainians supported independence, that was the end of the USSR. The empire couldn't exist without Ukrainians. And it is still true to this day, because when Vladimir Putin talks and signals that he wants to restore the Soviet empire, he knows that it's without, without Ukraine, it's impossible to do so. That's why he does what he does now. Piggybacking off of what Olga said, uh, without Ukraine, he doesn't have this dream of the old empire. And you are one of the elite war reporters in the country. And as you know, anyone asks me about the war going on in Ukraine and people ask me to write, say, uh -uh, go to Ilya. You know, he's the person that you talk to. And so tell me about your perspective, if you, what your memories are uh, back in 1991 and just kind of fast forwarding to now about your, your feelings about what's happening. Well, I find it really hard to have any memories of that period of time because I was an embryo back then. So my, my memories are not very, not very vivid, but you know, but nonetheless, <laughs> uh, yeah, but you know, nonetheless, I grew up in Donbass, uh, which, which has had, you know, this strong influence of, you know, Soviet mindset, Soviet lifestyle for, you know, decades after, thereafter and even now. So I definitely haven't lived in Soviet Union in my memories, but, you know, I have lived in, in this atmosphere of the downfall of the Soviet Union in the very, you know, earliest years of independence. For instance, I have this memory of me being like two or three years old and in the kindergarten, and we used to play with small flags, red flags, reading USSR in Russian. And I remember our school teacher explaining uh, to us what this means. So we had it by heart, this whole complicated uh, sentence, you know, the uh, 
the union of social uh, Soviet socialistic republics. We had it by heart in Russia, and we don't you know we were kids, we were two or three maybe, because just because you know we 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 were growing up among all these you know things of Soviet life. I mean, um, just household dishes, you know, anything you know, black um, posters, Soviet posters, books. So I learned reading um, from uh, you know old basic reading books, um, telling, you know, stories, basic, basic and pretty simple stories about Lenin or something. And uh, uh, as a grown up man, so I started, I developed interest in, in this, you know, Soviet, uh, downfall of Soviet Union, the birth of Soviet Union, the biographies of Lenin and of Stalin, for instance. And I compare the actual real biography of, for instance, Lenin with what I got from my, you know, childhood books, which is, Absolutely not at the same. I mean, I remember you know these old children's books portraying uh, Lenin as someone uh, from a very poor family um, whose parents could not earn his education, so he he had to uh, work hard. I mean, and meanwhile he was a nobleman. <laughs> Lenin was a nobleman from a very prosperous family, which was, you know, the propaganda started. I just realized that you know the propaganda started developing from the you know from you being an infant. So that's why, you know, since I was growing up in Donbass with this huge influence of, you know, post-Soviet culture and mindset, so that that was always a very important thing to my family, this nostalgia that that was developed, you know, in the years after. And I find it really curious and I find it really strange that, you know, back in during this referendum, like uh, as Olga mentioned, we had more than 8% of people in Donbass voting for the independence just because you know politically economically ideologically the Soviet Union was just exhausted itself it just it uh, it went to the dead point and uh, during these uh, events in Moscow um, the, um, the coup in Moscow in uh, in August 1991 so it's a, it's a very important thing that you know the old Soviet guards and you know, the Soviet lead decided to launch a coup uh, and probably get back the um, the old style Soviet Union order. But there was no one, I mean, among the popular, popular, you know, um, popular front in, in the Soviet Union to stand up and defend the old order. So everybody wanted to change. But with the time, with years after you know many people like my family for instance and lots of people that i know they develop this nostalgia for for things that they didn't have actually in soviet union but they started missing them just because you know this is how this human human nature works so yeah the whole this whole thing with the soviet union the fall of the soviet union it still has its effects i see it almost every day you know we're talking about war we're talking about you know things that um, laid foundation for this war in Donbass because I, right. as a native guy, I know this crystal clear where this nostalgia comes from. Uh, I I understand how Russia for years, for decades, it exploited this uh, social uncertainty in Donbass. You know, lack of jobs, um, criminal situation, lack of perspective for the future, lack of stability, and uh, this is why many people just got up with this uh, propaganda and and decided to you know to ditch Ukraine for something something better than uh, that what we had. So Olga, you know, the current situation right now, we, we, we've been here before. So when you think about the first invasion, first of all, there, there's this conversation about 
oh, the, you know, the Kremlin, the Russians are going to invade. And I think you and Ilya, everybody's made it clear they've already invaded, right? The, their, 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 their troops, their military is already on Ukrainian soil. Their military has illegally um, stolen land, Crimea and Luhansk and Donbass, you know, well, the annexation, that was the illegal, the illegal annex, annexation. So they've already invaded, but this time around, Olga, what do you think about the American response to it? Because what we're seeing in the United States is the White House saying that they will not accept any red lines through uh, from, from Putin and they are threatening major economic sanctions. We don't know what those sanctions are, what they could be, but how do you, what, what do you think about the West's response to uh, Kremlin to the Kremlin's menacing, uh, particularly from the U.S. side. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, well, you know, on the one hand, uh, the West and the U.S. are Ukraine's strongest allies and biggest partners. You know, so it would be unwise uh, for me as a Ukrainian to criticize them that, too harshly. But definitely, uh, there could be more. They could have done more, and they could be doing more now. Of course, all the strong words and the you know concern over Russian actions is okay, but that is not enough. And uh, what is needed is definitely more support to Ukraine, supporting Ukraine in, first of all with defensive weapons with the systems of air defense, because this is a weak spot of the Ukrainian military forces. We don't have adequate air defense that would be able to uh, protect Ukraine from Russian missile attacks or airstrikes. So that is like the highest, the biggest priority. And that what should be like on top of the agenda in all the talks of Ukrainian officials with their Western counterparts. I know that these talks are going on, but I also know that there is a huge reluctance in the West to provide Ukraine with weapons and with uh, air defense weapons, but not only with air defense. Uh, the, the, the problem is that, as we found out uh, in the recent weeks, that for example, in Germany, uh, under the chancellorship of Angela Merkel, the former chancellor, it refused to provide Ukraine with very basic weapons that Merkel and Germany blocked a procurement mechanism in the framework of NATO, according to which Ukraine would have received some non-lethal weapons, some rifles, and it was like a laughable number. It was, if I'm not mistaken, 90 uh, rifles from Lithuania that were blocked, this delivery of these rifles and this um, actually purchase because Ukraine has already paid for them, but it never received these rifles because they were blocked by Germany. And the Germany said, okay, providing Ukraine with weapons would just provoke Russia and would like escalate the situation. I think this is a very, very weak uh, signaling. Uh, sig this is a signal of weakness on behalf of, uh, of Germany and of those Western countries that you know are thinking in these terms that we shouldn't provoke Russia, we shouldn't provide Ukraine with any uh, defensive weapons. And I think another problematic thing is that a lot of statements are coming in in the recent days from Western officials, uh, US and UK officials, among them, 
two countries that are there should be uh, that uh, according to their rhetoric are the strongest allies of Ukraine. So their rhetoric in the recent days was that uh, they definitely will not fight for Ukraine and there will be no like their military on Ukrainian soil. Well, this is clear, actually, like it, this is not surprising. Nobody in Ukraine expects uh, the American soldiers or the UK boots on the ground. That's uh, out of question. And Ukrainians realize that. But, you know, voicing these things like saying it out loud that, OK, nobody's going to fight for Ukraine. I think it sends a very uh, wrong message to Putin, to Russia. It sends a message that the West is weak. It is not ready to support Ukraine. It is very uh, hesitant, even about providing it with defensive weapons. So uh, it's very disappointing, actually, from a Ukrainian point of view, to listen and to see, you know, these statements because we are well aware that we are on our own to fight this. We are well aware that there will be no like military of other countries to help us with that. But at least, you know, you can do more to support us. You can provide us weapons, with weapons, you can, you know, recalibrate your rhetoric so you don't send the signals of weakness to the Kremlin. One of the things that a lot of us don't know are, are the differences between the Ukrainian military back during the, back during the initial invasion versus now. So do you mind touching on that and kind of getting more into the 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 the, the block that Olga brought up from NATO in regards to the delivery of these kind of these rifles and other things. So yeah, uh, it is very true that you know we do not need you know foreign boots on the ground. Nobody wants really realistically wants you know American, British, or French soldiers to you know hold ground and fight for Ukraine. That is not an option, of, of course. But you know I see this narrative. On Twitter, for instance, by useful, useful idiots in the West or, or Russian propaganda outlets, spreading this whole thing, and you know, tempting, tempting into an obvious answer: Why should we die for you know for Kiev or for for Kharkiv? Of course, no, you don't have to die because we have our own standing military. It's pretty okay. I mean, we have more than 200,000 troops on the ground. I'm not even talking about thousands of uh, retired combatants, uh, paramilitaries, and stuff. So yeah, in terms of weapons, yes, we had this latest scandal with Germany blocking, apparently having blocked the um, the procurement of of weapons uh, via the NATO procurement agency. So it was mostly about um, um, M82, I guess, Barrett's, you know, the heavy uh, heavy uh, sniper rifles. Um, so. As the story goes, you know, the German government, the previous German government, it, it decided that, you know, uh, this is not a good decision in terms of um, Ukraine supp uh, being supplied with these um, lethal weapons, I mean, in terms of rifles. But they, uh, they said no to this thing, but they uh, decided to give the green light to um, not lethal uh, part of the deal. So we got it. Um, so it was mostly about, you know, the equipment, uh, support equipment. So. But in, 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 in general, yes, we do not need troops on the ground, but you know, America, Britain, they're doing lots of things in you know, NATO, so that they can realistically do. But we in Ukraine, we have uh, lots of talks about what can be done like here and now. We're not talking about you know, uh, providing us for a Patriot air defense system in like five years and uh, after millions of dollars, billions of dollars paid. 
Uh, everybody's talking, for instance, uh, about uh, you know Swift solutions like the um, Stinger man-particle missiles. Hey, by the way, guys... Ilya, a lot of people don't oh. understand what these platforms are. Mm -hmm. So, do you mind explaining yeah. what these are and what they can do and why Ukraine needs them? Because yeah, we don't definitely. Know. Uh, for instance, this famous Stinger uh, man portal miss missile system against uh, that could be used against aircraft. They were super uh, popular among the um, Afghan Mujahideen during the Soviet-Afghan war. You know, the U.S. used to provide um, Afghan resistance with these weapons, and they were good at you know killing Soviet aircraft to the point that you know Soviet pilots were super afraid of uh, helicopter pilots, super afraid of getting deployed to regions where they had Stingers. Uh, so we, you know, the expert, society, expert community in Ukraine, it puts a stake on them because, you know, Russians are going to enjoy the air superiority. So if lots of, you know, Ukrainian soldiers, to put it simply, have these missiles, they are pretty easy to operate. They, so you just need one man to go. Um, so it would be really hard for Russians to get deployed to and, you know, to continue enjoying this air superiority, which is super important in modern warfare. Uh, and this another system with, that we're talking about, the Avenger system, it's just a, like a, a, a super style of, uh, of uh, these um, Stinger missiles. It's just the Humvee, you know, the car, the vehicle with uh, at least four Stinger systems uh, installed on it. So it's like a four times stronger thing. So it's to put it simply. So, like I said, again, uh, that would be super, <clears throat> super comfortable and super, super helpful uh, against Russian aircraft, attack aircraft, helicopters, because they would have it in large numbers because they want uh, superiority from the air, which is very important. But in general terms, I believe that yes, providing with weapons is very good. I mean, the actual weapons, the lethal weaponry, but political tools and, you know, and the which is more important, economic tools are super effective too. I mean, lest we forget that, you know, of the fact that, you know, we can point to absolutely any Russian official or billionaire, and I would find uh, a villa in Italy or billions in American banks or an apartment in Miami or a kid studying in Cambridge or New York City or elsewhere. So they have it connected with the West. I mean, they depend on the West because like I said, they prefer to earn money from, from Russia, from the Russian population and then hold their wealth in the West. So it's, it is very strong instrument that the West now has. And I believe that if, uh, if Russia launches the most stupid thing that they, they can do, I mean, in terms of war, big war on Ukraine, I believe the West would be inclined to, into using this thing and just, making the whole Kremlin let's say goodbye to their wealth in the West. I believe that's the best thing that they can do. I, mean, I, I agree with you on that. Yeah, uh, you know, Ellie, mm -hmm. you're, you're totally right about that. And there are two Russian journalists, their books and their journalism really expose the complicity, quite frankly, that institutions in the West have with uh, Russian oligarchy in regards to making it easy for them to offshore their money in American real estate, for example, and in and, 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 and businesses, et cetera. And so I do believe that uh, you, you are definitely correct about that. And that's a whole nother subject that I'm definitely gonna get into, but the economic pressure, you're absolutely correct in that people severely underestimate how much they care about their money. 
you know, and oh, yeah. how that can change and how much that, I mean, because at the end of the day, they're greedy fucks. Let's just, you know, <laughs> you know, that that's, I mean, because the thing is like, they steal from their own people. So, 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 and, and so they have no, pro there's no moral compass in that regard, unless you mess with their money. So you're definitely correct about that. But Ilya, I want to touch on the fact that I think the bottom, the takeaway from this is that now from, from the reporting that I've read of yours, the Ukrainian military is in a much better position, at least morally, right, to put up a fight than they were back during the during the initial evasion. Am, am I saying that properly? Yeah, you're definitely right. And uh, I'm saying that, that not because I'm being patriotic or something, just because, you know, I have spent eight years with these guys in the front line, you know, uh, and also in back for years. So I know this military from the from inside uh, as much as I can. So, yeah, back in uh, early 2014, we had something like 5,000 troops ready to deploy and actually fight, which is nothing. I mean, we're talking about elite airborne troops. It's just 5,000 troops against the whole Russian military. I mean, we're talking about the occupation of Crimea, the earliest days of uh, Donbass. So we have, you know, the whole the whole country was disintegrated and disoriented and it was in mayhem after the, um, the revolution. Uh, so definitely back then they had this moment of surprise, which is why their operation in Crimea went so perfect. Let's let's admit it. But right now, of course, you know, the uh, Ukrainian military is full of troubles and full of problems, systematic uh, problems. It's still riddled with bureaucracy, um, you know, Soviet style disorder, this over centralization of command. We don't have we still don't have this thing like you guys in America do. Uh, in which you know a low-ranking commander on the ground has has a say and uh, has the right to make decisions. So we are moving to the, into this direction, but we still have a long way to go. But what we have right now is a completely different military. You know, uh, even though it's not perfect in terms of maintenance uh, and weaponry, but I believe what is super important is that morale and the organization is very strong and stable. I mean, it is. It was always a, like a curious surprise to me that I get deployed to the front line in Donbass. And it's been, let's say, seven years of static war, but not many things happening almost every day. You know, Donbass is the place where time stands still as you go to the front line. So it's routine. It's nothing changes day by day. But these guys, I mean, the military, Ukrainian soldiers, they keep holding the line without any, you know, slightest hope of victory on any perspective of, of success, but they still doing their job. And in, in history, it's it's always it's always been the case that, you know, the uh, standard military not engaged in active combat or doing not doing something, you know, uh, it gets demoralized and decays because, uh, because of this, you know, routine. But this is not what happens with these guys. I mean, they do their job. They know what they're doing. They're not perfect in terms of, you know, um, their skills, but they hold the line for years and they are ready to go on as long as, 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 as it's needed. So I have, I would not recommend, you know, underestimating this integrity and this stability. And besides, you know, we have demonstrated uh, this ability to, um, to, I mean, the, I mean, general population to um, get mobilized by our own initiative, you know, to form paramilitaries, which is also a very important factor in, in modern warfare. So, uh, in many ways, I believe that invasion here in Ukraine, with this hugely unfriendly and huge country with the standard military, 
is not is going to be super costly for Russians, super costly. So mm-hmm. I believe yeah. that this is our very basic factor prevents us and saving us from this invasion. Mm-hmm. And they know it. They know it. I mean, they have seen this. Yeah, absolutely. So Olga, you were telling me uh, in in, uh, in in the DMs about uh, some people that you met and. You know, going back to some of these stories about the the fall of the USSR, and so do you, you can you can start sharing them with us, uh, you know, right here. Yeah, uh, well, uh, I, as you know, I work as a freelance journalist for the Spanish news agency EFE, and in recent weeks, I was talking to some older people who directly contributed to the collapse of the USSR on the Ukrainian side. Like, was interviewing them and making reports about them well actually one report is still uh, it's not yet on but i will share with you some insights so you'll be the first to hear Uh, and uh, this is like very interesting actually to talk to those people you know who are now in their 70s and 80s who are that older generation who actually saw and witnessed they have the first-hand experience of life in the soviet union and how they like uh, remember it and you know and how they in their own ways fought about it so in a way like these are two like different stories i interviewed two uh, we can call them dissidents uh, ukrainian dissidents who fought against the soviet regime so in a way like the the common thing uh, is that they were both dissidents and that they were all both opposed to the soviet union but like their path to this opposition and to their support of the independent Ukraine was very different. And that's, I, I find it remarkable, you know, that people with different backgrounds, with different, uh, coming from a different professional uh, circles, uh, with different education and different life experience. But they, at, the, at some point, they reached the same conclusion that the Soviet Union wasn't viable, that it should cease to exist and that there should be an independent Ukraine. So uh, I'll tell you like one and then another one. So the the first one I talked to was uh, Leonti Sandulak. Uh, He is a a co-author of the Act of Declaration of Ukraine's Independence that was proclaimed on August 24, 1991. The fact that I mentioned earlier today at the parliament of the Ukrainian Soviet and Soviet Socialist Republic. So he wrote this uh, document together with another uh, a really famous dissident, Levko Lukyanenko. So they were two authors of this document. And this document was supported by a wide majority of MPs, including communist ones. And that's also interesting that actually communists in 1991, they also voted to end the communist empire, the Soviet empire. They supported uh, Ukraine's independence. And the path of this uh, man, of Leonti Sandulak, to, uh, to the opposition uh, to the Soviet Union was very interesting because he's, uh, he has a PhD in biology, if I'm not mistaken. He's a scientist. So he's a scientist and he's a biologist. Uh, and he's been working at the university in Chernivtsi in the Western Ukraine. And he was a member of the Communist Party because at those times you were not able to you know, get a job at the university to che- teach if you're not a member of the Communist Party. So. Uh, he was forced to 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 be there, although maybe he didn't support like it it wholeheartedly. And he told me that his transformation actually to the opposition uh, activists in a way was very gradual. So uh, he was born in the Soviet Union, like he he grew up in the Soviet Union, 
uh, and uh, uh, he was a member of the Communist Party. But what turned him into uh, the opponent of the Soviet regime was environment, uh, and, uh, and those were environmental catastrophes. I'm talking first of all about Chernobyl nuclear disaster in uh, 1986. Um, you know, the repercussions of which were felt uh, through all Europe and uh, especially hard uh, hit were Ukraine and Belarus. So the Chernobyl uh, nuclear disaster, it exposed very, uh, in a very open manner, the lies and of the Soviet leadership who are denying that uh, any incident has happened who denied for long weeks and months that there was any danger to people in Kyiv, which is like very close, uh, several dozens of kilometers from, from Pripyat, where the nuclear um, uh, plant was located. So the people were still uh, going to the 1st May demonstration in Kyiv just uh, five days after the, the nuclear disaster at Chernobyl happens because Soviet uh, leadership and Ukrainian Soviet leadership didn't warn that there were any risks connected to that. So he, this this man, the first like blow to him was this thing, yeah, because he was a supporter of uh, environmental movement, like he cared about that, and as as a scientist, he was researching on that. So after that, like he decided like to. Uh, to establish some like uh, environmentalist movement in his uh, hometown. And this is actually a very underreported also aspect of uh, how the Soviet Union collapsed, that the environmental movement played a big role in it. And then there was another event that pushed him even like closer to opposing the Soviet Union and eventually to leaving the Communist Party. Uh, it was a strange disease that was hitting children in his hometown when people uh, were children, small children, were losing hair just out of the blue. And again, the authorities lied about it. They didn't give any explanation. In the end, it turned out it was related to the toxic waste leak at one of the Soviet uh, plants in, in this town. But back at the time, nobody knew about that. And again, there were like attempts of cover up and a lot of lies and, uh, you know, no transparency. So this like pushed him towards like abandoning the Communist Party. And at the first elections, the there were semi-free elections to the Soviet parliament in 1989. So he campaigned on this environmentalist platform and he was elected to the parliament of the Soviet Union. And eventually there he joined the opposition groups, the Andrei Sakharov group, the famous Russian dissident uh, and opposition groups in the Ukrainian parliament. And that's like, that was his path that eventually one day, like he was there at the, uh, when the act of Ukraine's independence was written and he co-authored it with another person. So this is one story, how an environmentalist scientist turned into a, a dissident, Soviet dissident and the op opponent of the Soviet regime. And another person I interviewed um, is Mykola Matusevich, uh, who uh, was a co-founder of a Ukrainian Helsinki group. A human rights group that was co-founded in that was founded in 1976, one year after the signing of the Helsinki Final Act on human rights, that when Soviet Union took up some obligations to protect human rights. So this and this human rights organizations, Helsinki groups were created in various Soviet republics, and Ukraine was one of them. So this person was one of co-founders of this Helsinki group. And just five months after he and his colleagues announced that the, the they created this group, 
which was supposed to defend human rights of different ethnicities in the Soviet Union. So they, they were not doing like any like anti-Soviet propaganda or stuff. He was arrested and he was uh, convicted to eight years in gulags. And he's, he served actually those eight years in gulags and he was only released in 1989. So two years before the Soviet Union collapsed. So this is, you know, another story that shows you that how people who cared about human rights they were persecuted in the Soviet Union just like because they, they wanted equal rights and they fought, fought for human rights. But this is not always, you know, like ideological or political. This wasn't very often an ideological or political struggle, the, the opposition to the Soviet Union. It was very often an environmentalist struggle, a human rights struggle. And it had so many components because, well, this, this regime, it was a failure on so many levels. And the opponents to it, you know, they found so, so many like different uh, motivations and reasons uh, why they believed uh, that the USSR should cease to exist. Thank you for giving us an insight look into that reporting. I, I, I appreciate it. And I think that our listeners would appreciate that too. So um, and, and you'll at the end of the show, you'll tell us where we can find that reporting. Uh, Ilya, you said something earlier that interested me, and I want you to go back on it, which was how you grew up in the East, and you talked about this propaganda that was pumped into your region. At the top of my mind is, how are you able to grow up in a region where that disinformation, that criminal disinformation was pumped in, in, you know, in, in, into your region in, in every single day, but you have become the person that you are and fighting against it? So I would say it's all about, you know, education and also the spirit of time we were living. Um, I would say that uh, up until I graduated, no, no, no. Yeah, up until I graduated school and enrolled in a university in Mariupol, which is the southern city in Donbass, the port city. Um, I was super pro-Russian, I would tell you. Uh, because just because of my environment, because, uh, because of, you know, you know, you normally tend to accept things that your family believes in and, you know, your community believes in, in general. Yeah, so we're talking. But, and besides, I grew up in a small town, which is super, uh, super dependent on, you know, industrial system of Donbass. So, like I said, you, you, you share this mindset in general. But, you know, with the time, with the education, you know, uh, and uh, with the changing of, you know, time and circumstances that you live in, so you just develop different thoughts, different point of view on uh, what is common uh, among your community. For instance, uh, I don't know, uh, since you know, I grew up in an industrial town, which is super dependent. It was super dependent on the Soviet uh, military industry, for instance. So uh, when the Soviet military industry goes down, the whole city goes down, the uh, production goes down, lots of people unemployed, criminality. So. Of course, people are not not happy about this situation. So, and they blame the fall of the Soviet Union for the poverty, for the worsening of their condition. But you can't. But as you start, uh, as as a student, you start to understand the basic economy, the the reasons why Soviet Union, the Soviet economy was not effective and uh, what was not sustainable. So, but it is really hard to explain to these people that you know we in Ukraine in this new situation, we don't need this hundreds of factories producing tanks or tank components, just because you know you don't need thousands of tanks 
to put it simply, produced each and every day. So it's not the Ukraine's fall or, you know, democracy's fall or capitalism's fall that, you know, the Soviet Union produced and uh, incepted so many ineffective enterprises you worked with and you 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 um, depend your life on them. So blame it to the Soviet Union and the stupid Soviet economy, not, you know, capitalism or something like that. So as you understand, you know, the basics of politics, of how democracy works, um, you also develop a different uh, point of view on what's happened. Or, or also, for instance, I know it crystal clear, we all know it, that, you know, in the uh, late stages of Soviet Union, they had food deficits, uh, they had uh, empty shelves in supermarkets and shops uh, because of the uh, flaws of the Soviet economy and supplies. And in Moscow, uh, they had this thing with the uh, coming of hunger, actually hunger in, 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 uh, in Moscow, in the capital city of Soviet Union, they had, uh, they were running short of food supplies just because of this economy. And uh, I'm just asking my, my parents, my grandparents, what, what, what are you missing in this thing? I mean, from that, from that time. So yeah, it's all about education. But what do they say? I'm curious, what, what do they say to you? It's always, you know, since it's not based on something rational, for instance, I had a better job, for instance, in Soviet Union, but you didn't, you live better now. I mean, I'm telling you this, and it's going to be a surprising information, but right here, uh, the Ukrainian uh, controlled part of Donbass lived better in terms of, you know, stability, salaries, housing, uh, infrastructure. It lives better than any point of time before that. I know, I know it from my family, from the people I know. So life is as good as never before in Donbass in many ways, right here and now, in uh, in the Ukrainian part of Donbass. And, and, you talk, so, and you're talking to them about that, and so they don't see what you see. Yeah, they don't, just because, you know, they are not, it, it's not about, you know, rational, it's about, you know, rational thinking, you know, contemplating facts, you know, and, and calculations. So this propaganda thing, this nostalgia, indulged nostalgia, it's all about, you know, emotions. So I have it worse now, therefore, back in the day, it was better. And besides, I was young, I was strong and healthy. So it's really hard to, to persuade and to stay. You just compare, you know, your uh, my grandparents, for instance, salary back in the day with what I earn, for instance, right now, or what um, he would earn right here and now for as an engineer somewhere at a factory. So the salary is higher. And besides, you know, let me forget that back in Soviet Union, they could earn money, but they basically had nothing to spend on. For instance, if you want to buy a car, you know, right now I can buy a car or an apartment. I go to a you know, car shop and get a car if I have money. So, but back in the Soviet Union, you had to wait for something like 10 years. So you can buy actually a car that you actually earned by working. So you could have money, but you have no chances of spending it properly to, to make right. your life easier and important. So. What are you guys nostalgic of? I mean, like I said, it's all about emotions in many ways. So it's really hard to argue when you operate with figures and calculations. And uh, yeah, here in the states, we have a conversation about who helped the fall of the USSR, and then we have this whole nostalgia about Reagan. And I'll just give you my little spiel, just a brief spiel on it. I mean, we can when we're both in Kiev, I can give you a real detailed breakdown <laughs> about what I feel about Reagan specifically and his influence on the USSR because I this 
fascinating in one way, but there's a lot of our own propaganda about Reagan in another way. But I'll tell you what, <clears throat> but, but here's the, the point of it. Even if Reagan politically had not been so persistent with his resolve to see the fall of USSR, had it not fallen in 1991, it would have fallen on its own in 2001 because it was just unsustainable economically. It was going to fall anyway without any US interference. And another thing that we don't do is we don't pay tribute, Olga, kind of to the people that you're talking about, the people who are working on the ground. Like the people didn't want it writ large. Right. You see when people go to the streets in tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands around the union, they themselves did not want it. And so oh, yeah. it was going to fall anyway, even if it didn't fall in 1991. But again, that's going to, you know, when we meet up in Kiev, I'll give you a whole breakdown if y'all are interested in that, because I have my whole type of theory. But that's a kind of a, on the American side when we talk about Reagan. But Olga. Tell me about your New Year's resolution. I want to hear from Ilya as well, because for all of the drama and the trauma <laughs> that you people have been through with, with this Kremlin menacing, I just want to end this episode on some positive notes, because there are positive notes. Being a foreigner, an American who loves Ukraine and who lives in Ukraine part-time, let's just be honest, but I'm there three or four months out of the year. I have seen just a cultural shift, particularly in Kiev, for example, just walking around. I first went to Kiev in 19, no, not, not 1991. I went there in 2009 as a Fulbright grantee. Now, when I go, I see, I, it, I, it feels like a vastly different place vastly different and this was all about ukrainian ingenuity and people just taking pride in themselves and one of the things that i would like to see i would hope america could do collectively because we have our movements you know as you all know i, I talk a lot uh, about the blm movement proudly and how it's important that you have movements that really help to advance and, and liberate you know all of society but you all in ukraine have your own movements of people that have worked diligently to improve uh, Ukrainian society. And as a foreigner who visits, I see it. And it just seems like it's something very much to be proud of despite all of Ukraine's problems. So Olga, tell me what you are proud of and what you would like to see in 2022 in, in, in your country. Yeah, well, uh, my main wish is, of course, like very banal. Uh, I cannot say, well, of course, I wish for peace, but unfortunately, we haven't seen peace for the last seven years, and I'm afraid it's unlikely we'll see peace in 2022. But at least I hope there will be no like extension of aggression, you know, and all this like rhetoric that we are hearing from Russia and all this military posturing at Ukraine's borders, it just doesn't lead to any like other like disastrous escalation and, and you know more aggression and wider war so this is like my main wish and uh you know uh and i believe everyone can make a difference in a way like by doing their job good and by you know continue contributing to ukraine's development so as a journalist and as a researcher 
And that's what I do. And that's, you know, what gives me hope and, and motivation and the feeling of accomplishment, because I, I do believe in small steps. And it's I've seen it, you know, multiple times in in my life here in Ukraine, also because I, I participated in all the major events since 2000s. I participated in the Orange Revolution. I volunteered there as, you know, I was still a student of journalism and I was just handing out the leaflets with news to the protesters. So, uh, and I was there during the Revolution of Dignity in 2014, 2013. Uh, working as a journalist and, you know, like tweeting what's happening and reporting for uh, different international media. And in both those cases, in a way, I saw that, you know, that people have power and that they can make a difference and that they can change the situation, even when it seems like really bad, desperate. It, it never is. In the end, it always depends on individual people's actions, you know, and their ability to unite, to hold their ground, uh, to persevere and not to give up. So that's what actually motivates me uh, to, you know, stay in Ukraine, continue doing what I do, believing in Ukraine's bright future, despite all odds and despite all the external and internal uh, threats. And also seeing like different people around me who are doing like some really amazing things. You know, one of the things that really inspires me is uh, Ukrainian culture, because we've seen a huge boom of Ukrainian filmmaking, music, um, various cultural initiatives in the last years. And, you know, like Ukrainian filmmakers are now winning international prizes at the, at the festivals, like both documentaries and, and fiction movies and uh, Ukrainian writers, Ukrainian poets who are now winning international awards, Ukrainian music that is conquering Europe and the world. And I, I think, you know, it's like this, uh, Ukraine has this huge untapped potential and it's very innovative. Like people here are really, they have free spirit. They are very creative. They are very innovative. And that's why I believe, you know, they will prevail uh, against all these attempts to drag Ukraine back into the past, into this like, you know, Soviet or whatever past uh, that is like so obsolete, so opposite to, you know, to innovation, to creativity, to freedom. So that, you know, gives me like hope and motivation and a lot of inspiration. So my resolution for 22, that all these things continue, that Ukrainians continue showing all this, you know, huge free spirit and their resilience. Um, and I'm sure, you know, it, it, they cannot be broken. It cannot be broken. Like no revisionist imperial power can, can break it. I, I just hope, you know, that, that the West maybe and the, and the other countries understood it uh, a little bit better because, you know, Ukraine has really, as you said, Ukraine has really changed a lot, especially since the Russian aggression began. And it, it has changed, you know, in, in terms of like reforms, that there were a lot of like really important reforms in terms of democratization, in terms of uh, all this like uh, entrepreneurial spirit and all these like new initiatives in the IT sector, I didn't mention that, like it's a huge uh, innovative and booming sector in Ukraine and Ukrainian IT specialists, they are 
welcomed all over the world and they are wanted you know by the best companies over the all over the world and ukrainian it startups are really doing perfect job on a world stage so this is just like another confirmation of how like creative how innovative how cool ukrainians are and i just wish you know the world knew that more and would support ukraine and would support ukrainian uh, freedom and democracy and independence more um, you know what i'm really proud about my country is that we are still a nation of young dreamers i would say uh, you know, back in the day when uh, the Euromaidan thing was getting unfolded, you know, I was the guy who led the very first Euromaidan rally in Mariupol. I just took hit the streets with my friends, you know, several students and also a couple of uh, university lecturers. So I was holding a EU, EU flag uh, in front of a little crowd, you know, I was leading them to the streets and we were booed in the streets of Mariupol. We were doing that just because we were, you know, we were dreamers. We wanted to have something better than what our parents and grandparents had. We wanted democracy. We wanted a better life. We wanted nice police officers in the street. We wanted clean streets. We wanted uh, nice judges, uh, independent judges. So, and we still are. I mean, what we have here in Ukraine is this fight for a better life, not just because we hate something, just because we want it better. And we have it hard, I mean, in terms of you know reforms and introducing democracy and combating corruption but we're moving on bit by bit at every step we make i see this progress and uh, you are very correct to say that the country is so much different from what it was eight ten years ago when i was a student for instance so we moving moving on um it's pretty hard it's pretty dramatic what we have we keep losing soldiers each and every year, approximately 100 soldiers can lose combat for this, you know, sacrificing their lives for this um, without any hope of clear victory. So my New Year's wish is for us to stay this nation of dreamers, of, of, of following this, you know, romantic dream. And that's why in many ways, you, you foreigners, you guys love us, us so much because, you know, we have this romantic vibe. Uh, and everybody knows this. This is why you know people tend to love Ukraine because you know we inspire because we are dreamers. And besides, you know, um, when it comes to you know my New Year's revolution, and it's high time for us to make one. Um, you know, I am having this in my mind for many years. You know, back in uh, in the earliest days of war, I um, I wanted to volunteer for the military. I decided to enroll twice. But I was rejected because I have a blood disease that uh, gets me pretty bad. So I was rejected twice, even though they had um, severe lack, uh, lack of personnel to fight. So in many ways, that's why I became a journalist, a military journalist, just because I wanted to be there. I just wanted to be there any way I, I can. But uh, right now, I, I believe I want something more than, you know, getting deployed and uh, with soldiers in the front line and also writing about this thing. So uh, hopefully next year I would do something about my disease and hopefully I can join the territorial defense units, you know, to become weekend soldier. Uh, it's like a, the U.S. National Guard uh, in in, uh, in the States. So hopefully they will say yes this time because I want to get deployed, you know, for weekends, you know. To be a formally, you know, in, in the service, uh, and to also to do journalism, obviously. So I want to mix these things. So because just just because I need, I need, I feel the need of introducing more into service for my country. So absolutely, yeah. So 
Yeah, so yeah. Ilya, first off, go, go ahead, Olga, you want to say something? Yeah, I just wanted to say that I attended the territorial defense drills last weekend, and actually there are journalists who train with them. There are so many people, and there is a boom now in requests to join territorial defense units. And people who come there are all people with a, a higher education, with a degree. I talked to the commander of the unit and he said like all the new requests they are receiving are from entrepreneurs, from lawyers, from journalists, from public servants. So like the best people of Ukraine who are ready, you know, to defend their like cities, the, the regions where they live, because territorial defense is about that, is about defending like the place where you live. So that's like really impressive. I was really impressed by, you know, like the spirit of these people and by the fact that there are a lot of people who are in their like 50s and even like up until 60 years old, you can join territorial defense. And there are a lot of people who are in their 40s and 50s who are joining this and, and a lot of women, men and women. So it's really impressive and kudos and good luck, Ilya, with that. Yeah, yeah same, same here. I got yeah, a lot yeah. of friends in the territorial defense unit, so they are pretty happy about this. Hopefully I will make it too. Yeah, absolutely, Olivia. And I just want to cap off by giving my resolutions that I want. First of all, Ilya, I I hope that in in um, as a person of faith, I pray that your health will improve so that you can be healthy and you can be productive. And I pray for the emotional health of Ukraine because I know that it is a very traumatizing experience being. Uh, in America, quite frankly, we're the remaining superpower for better or for worse. And we I, I don't have to wake up worrying about somebody menacing our borders, right? And not saying that we don't have problems. America has plenty of problems, as you both know, but I don't have that problem. When I leave my country, I know that no one's going to fuck with us, basically. So I just, you know, so I don't have that issue, but I do um hope and pray that you all can wait one day wake up too and not have that issue because you shouldn't have to be a superpower in order to feel free and safe and liberated and i also am thankful for the both of you for you doing the work that you do and you're human beings and i i, I met olga we've met several times and uh you Ilya, i hope to get to know you more as i travel to ukraine because i'm there all the time uh, Zoga knows, and so I'll be there next month. But at any rate, the main thing from America is that I want us to be a better, uh, I think that we could be a better global citizen in the world. I think that we could be better to each other. I believe that we should do a better job internally of prioritizing the health of our people. Collectively, politically, we could do much better to take care of American citizens particularly as we're dealing with this new variant of COVID-19. We have the best Medicare medical system in the world, but it's not one that every American can access. And I hope that we all will, will go into a new political time when we will have better access to healthcare for all of our citizens. But particularly for Ukraine, I hope that our current White House administration will be a better partner to Ukraine. And as somebody who has covered Ukraine, I could tell you, and you'll appreciate this particularly, Ilya, uh, I wasn't a full-time reporter covering Ukrainian military, but I did have time when I spoke with a number of people, uh, particularly in, in the White House administration. And I remember that the Ukrainian military was a, was a laughing joke. And I had people in very high positions to tell me directly that 
there was a point where the Ukrainian military was so disorganized that they would have multiple people coming to them for different requests. And one, one guy would joke that, oh man, it's the Ukrainians in their lists. How, which Ukrainian is going to come to us with their list today? So it was a, so they viewed the military as a joke. I can say, as a matter of fact, that Americans don't view Ukrainian military as a joke anymore. That's a fact. And people do acknowledge the vast improvements. What I hope for for Ukraine is that we become better citizens, uh, better, uh, better supporters of you and understand how important strategically Ukraine is. And so if I, my work as a podcaster to amplify Ukrainian voices like yours can help gain, you know, the common, give the common American access to your professional sacrifices, that would be great. I definitely encourage my listeners to go to the Kiev Independence Patreon and support their work. I am a patron and I give. And if you want to support work of Ilya, I strongly suggest that you go to the Kiev Independent and support them. They do outstanding work. They are the best source of English language coverage in Ukraine. And so they have my stamp of approval. And Olga, before we get off, tell us where we can find your work and your, re your, your recent reporting. Well, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm Olga Tokariuk there. So basically I share their links to my articles, but uh, since they are mostly published in Spanish and there is not always an English version, uh, so it's not always easy to, to find them and to read them, although like the automatic translation works well and sometimes they are in, in English. So for example, I posted a, a link to an article about the ter territorial defense drills, so you can find it there. Thank you both for coming on to the podcast and you all are, hey, I told you the best and brightest in Ukraine. And so I hope I wish you all well as we um, in, in, you know, going into the new year. Thanks a lot. Thank Thanks you, Terrell. Yeah. Amen to that. Yeah. All the best to you and to your listeners. Have happy holidays and a peaceful new year. Go to your favorite podcast apps and give me a five-star rating, especially on iTunes. The ratings definitely help magnify uh, my podcast. And for those who give me five stars, that's really excellent. It, it really helps a lot. So please do that. Go on your favorite podcast apps, especially iTunes. And you can also tune in to my twice a week Twitter Spaces show, also named Black Diplomats, where I talk about all things foreign policy. There's no set schedule. You'll just have to follow me at Russian underscore star, and that star with two R's, to learn when I'll be broadcasting a space. And space is a new platform that's offered by Twitter. It's very similar to Clubhouse, where you can hear me engaging other Twitter folks about foreign policy issues of the week and also evergreen stuff. Black Diplomats Podcast comes to you with support from the Outrider Foundation, as well as my devoted Patreon supporters. And production of Black Diplomats comes thanks to Mike Hall, my brother from another mother. Thanks for listening and see you all next week. Oh,